Station. I can't get no call to action, but I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, business and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Chris Paros, a guest I'm giddy to gab with, and not just because she's a lifelong Spurs fan. Chris is, amongst many things, an anti-discrimination campaigner who believes football can be a positive force for social and cultural change. A business leader broadcasting from the bench to the boardroom, she spends her time solving hugely complex, often highly emotive problems that are rooted in everything from corporations to communities. Whilst she has clarified, and I use that term very loosely, that she both does and doesn't work in football, Chris says a lot of people talk about football as being a mirror of society, but I think we have the ability to make it a leader. Football is a sport where we learn to work, play, celebrate and commiserate together. Football clubs are embedded into their communities because they can make such a positive impact in people's lives. In the same way, I believe we can use football to positively affect a wider cultural change. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, Giles. I sound very pompous, actually, as you're reading it like that. I'm not sure how I feel about it. (laughs) We'll have to edit that out then. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I mean, I have said it. I've got to stand by what I say. So, you know, I do believe it as well, to be fair. I do believe it. Good. I mean, no need to edit then. Right. Seven quick-fire questions. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Birmingham or London? London. Talking or listening? Listening. Glenn Hoddle or Ozzy Ardiles? Ozzy. These are easy. Right. We're sticking with a theme. Favourite Spurs acronym? AVB or ASD? ASD. (laughs) Come on. Quickest yet. Uh, Specialist or generalist? Generalist. Lastly, Emma Hayes or Serena Wiegman? Emma Hayes. Wow, that was a breeze. (laughs) Didn't have to think about any of those. No, to be fair, I did have to think about Hoddle or Ozzy. Yeah, yeah, well, you couldn't couldn't tell. Really? Okay. (laughs) You went for Ozzy. I I went through a number of machinations in my brain. Yes. And settled on Ozzy. Nothing wrong with that. Right, so Chris, uh, to start the show, on Call to Action, we always like to celebrate the weird and often wonderful ways that guests have ended up in the career they're in now. If we had a Call to Action competition for most impressive job titles held, you would probably walk your way to the final and win by <laughs> half time because <laughs> we've got, you know, vice chair and trustee of Kick It Out, FA's inclusion advisory board member, chair of the board at the Women's Equality Party, treasurer and trustee of the charity Just Like Us, co-chair and co-founder of Proud Lily Whites, the official Tottenham Hotspur LGBTQ plus supporters association. I could go on, but if we go right back to the beginning, what was your first ever job? And then what was your first proper job? So I come from a family of immigrants from Cyprus. So like all good immigrants, and a number of my family members had shops when I was growing up. So I suppose my first job was probably working in my uncle's video shop in the 1980s. 
in, in North London video shop. And, you know, video was a big deal in the 80s. I mean, many people listening, I'm sure, don't even know what a video is. But his video <laughs> shop, which he opened in the mid-80s, I didn't work there till the late 80s, it had a £50 membership fee. So imagine £50 in like 1985 or whatever. And there was a queue down the road and around the block to join it. Wow. And then, of course, he was put out of business by Blockbuster, which is also now a relic. I think there's yes. one Blockbuster left in the in the U.S., so I worked in my uncle's video shop, which taught me all sorts of things about dealing with people, having conversations about weird things, even from a quite a young age. I did one thing that always sticks out in my mind was there were also some under the counter videos and someone brought back an under the counter video and I commented on it. And my mum told me not to comment on the under the counter videos because people were, well, men, because it was only men that got them were embarrassed about them so I shouldn't talk about them so yeah working in family shops I worked in video shop my other uncles also had a leather shop on Seven Sisters Road so on a Saturday I used to get the tube from Southgate Seven Sisters and go and work in the leather shop and the exciting thing about that was that Jazzy B from Soul to Soul who is obviously from the area used to come in and buy a leather had came in a number of times and had like leather jackets made for him so like in 1989 that was very exciting yeah. And in the back of the leather shop was a little workshop. And I spent one summer in there making covered buttons. If you think about what a covered button is, <laughs> so you've got a button on a leather jacket that's also made of leather. It's got to have some button in it. And let me tell you, I spent literally two weeks with a, this weird little machine with the backside of a button, like a bit of metal with like a thing on. And then you'd put a, a, I'd have to cut out a disc of leather from an, like another little weird, implement put it in this machine put the bit of metal in do this kind of like pulley down notion and make this covered button two weeks i spent doing that in a in the back of the workshop with a guy called mr ung who was the um machinist didn't speak any english there was no one to talk to and i've not been able to listen to capital radio since because it was on all day long and all i heard was capital radio and i can't listen to it so yeah that was that and then I know I'll get to my first proper job in a minute. Absolutely. But the other one that I always come back to was in the sixth form, in the the summer between the lower and the upper sixth, as we called it then, which was probably like 1991. There was three shops in the 80s and 90s called The Boot Store. There was one on Oxford Street, one in Camden, and one on the King's Road. The one in Camden, he was the only importer of these shoes called wallabies or whoppers if you, I don't know if you remember them they're all different colors they were like Spanish and uh, made in Spain and they came in all different colors and they were a real craze I think it was 1990 they were a real craze to the extent that there was queues down the road for that as well he wasn't my uncle he was my uncle's mate and anyway, I went and worked in this shoe shop on Oxford Street again a brilliant grounding of you know like any kind of sales or customer service is like incredible grounding for everything you do because you have to understand your audience, figure out what's motivating them to to kind of, you know, be in the shop, want to make a purchase, etc. And then adjusting how you deliver accordingly in order to like make the sale or just make sure that they're having a good experience or whatever. But anyway, so I, I worked in this shoe shop, which was great because there was a bunch of us. We were all about the same age, 17, 18, living our best lives. But uh, my best friend at sixth form went to work for an MP because we were doing a politics A-level and she was like, she got this job for an MP and she was like, I'll come with me. I'm really bored. I'm just answering letters all day. 
so I, I said to my mate, I can't do it. I need to earn some money. And she was like, well, that's fine. And then, of course, it turns out it was the Shadow Home Secretary, who was one guy called Tony Blair. She's a great political brain. She worked on the 97 general election and was a spad for many years. So really, really proud of her. I'm still in touch with her. We're still really good friends. And, you know, I always wonder what might have happened if I'd gone and done that as well. Um, but I also think there's nothing, there's also nothing like getting a grounding in retail and what you learn from that is really something else. Yeah, I think we've interviewed about 120-ish people now from all walks of life with with a you know a fairly heavy bias towards marketing and, and business uh, mm. industries. And one of the consistent criticisms, certainly of marketing, is that people who practice it tend to be so far removed from the front line of you know actually interacting with the customer or even understanding the customer at all and yeah. a few people have made a similar point about those customer service roles because they are frontline you are understanding people in whatever context that is whether it's a video shop whether you're making covered buttons or, <laughs> or whatever it might be it's really really key and it's a skill as you say that is so relevant to so many different sectors did you know at that stage I mean, it'd be, it would be mad for anyone to know how significant that was. And maybe no. retrospectively, you you know, you sort of recognise it. No idea at all. I only see it in the rearview mirror. But yes. I can really see how important it was, both in the video shop and actually in the shoe shop. Because in the shoe shop as well, it was all young people. Whereas in the video shop, I was barely in there on my own. I was usually with like my uncle, his business partner, or my mum, who also worked in there. But in the shoe shop, it was all young people. And there was there was also something about how we as a team managed to deliver this. Like we'd open the shop, we'd make sure it was all clean. We'd get people in. We'd like play little games with each other about who could like do the, the best. You know, someone comes in for a pair of, you know, it was we sell it used to sell cowboy boots like really expensive, like Sancho cowboy boots. So even then in the 90s, they were like 100 and whatever quid, you know, Red Wings, Timberlands, that kind of thing, as well as bog standard shoes. You know, and someone would come in for a pair of one thing and it's like, oh, can I sell them the Red Wings? And, you know, you'd never do it in a way that was just kind of, you know, there was nothing in it for us in that sense. We didn't work on commission or anything like that. But it was always interesting to see, you know, what people were really after. Because, of course, people come in for shoes, but if you're going to spend that much money on shoes, it's not really about shoes or boots. It's about who you want to tell the world you are. Yeah. And I think somehow we, you know, a couple of us intuited that. And so, and therefore, that's what you worked with. So it wasn't always about whether you could get them to spend more money. It was understanding. It's like, okay, who, do, who are they trying to tell the world they are? And making sure that they, you know, that they go out of there, like, feeling delighted, which... You know, it's like to get through, it was a long day. You know, it was 10 till 7 the shop was open, if I remember correctly. And in those days, there was no electronic system of anything. And it was an old shop on Tottenham Court Road. So when you wanted to go and get a pair of boots, you had to like run up three flights of stairs. (laughs) So there was a lot in it. But the guy who ran it, well, I was going off to university, obviously. And he was like, he tried to say to me, no, you don't want to go to university. You understand business stay here and I'll give you a shop. And I'm like, I don't want a shop. 
Thank you. I don't want to shop. That's a cool offer, though. I love that turn of phrase as well, benefit of the rear view mirror. And and you probably heard this from me or at least Beth in, in preparing for the recording today. But the reason we asked that question is because so many people that we come across at early stages of their career can be filled with so much anxiety about there being a correct way to, you know, to develop a, a life and a career and ch- make choices, whether it's university or just any type of geographic location, career prospects, etc. And I think that you can only really see those benefits in the rearview mirror and actually sharing the like the amazingly diverse stories we've shared over the last four years has I hope at least lifted some of that anxiety away so when you were doing politics a level with then and that shop story is, is obviously a nice little cue for this but was that with the intention to study politics at university like had you had you had mapped out your kind of next steps at that stage I got really interested in kind of you know, sort of socio-cultural, political thinking, I suppose. And so I applied to do media and cultural studies at Birmingham. And Birmingham was like the place that started the practice of cultural studies. There was a thing called the Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies that was set up by Stuart Hall, who's like great, you know, great sort of black thinker in this country. It wasn't called the Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies by the time I got there. And I applied to go there to do that, which I thought was going to be really cool. And then Absolutely. I loved my politics A-level more than anything. And as I said, me and my mate, you know, we did that together and we absolutely loved it. And then we got really like we got the highest marks of the country, our teacher told us, for in it. And so I thought yeah. well, maybe I should go and do a politics degree. So I I asked Birmingham, like literally in the summer before, can I switch to politics? And they were like, yeah, yeah, sure. No problem. And I got there and it just wasn't as it just wasn't as good. <laughs> I didn't like it. It was too much in a box or whatever, whereas cultural studies is exactly what I wanted. And actually that was, even though that wasn't necessarily about political theory, it was very political. There was some philosophy thrown in as well. And so actually what I managed to do was I did the first year in the, of the politics degree, but my, the, you, you did five things and one of them was an elective. So I elected to do a cultural studies course in my first year and realised that I should have been doing cultural studies all along. And then I managed, and then I managed to persuade them to let me back into cultural studies for years two and three. And because of having done that first cultural studies course, what I didn't have was an elective in year two. I just had to do the thing that I missed out on in year one. If you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did, a I did a cultural studies degree. And honestly, it's like, it's, it's literally, I think the degree that spawned the term a Mickey Mouse degree. Um, it actually is because I think someone did something on cartoons and there's sort of, you know, cultural influence or impact or whatever. But it was it was the best thing I ever did because the, the way that it kind of helped us to sort of think about the world, you know, in that, that second year, we did one module on race, one module on gender, one module on cultural geography, I think it was. And the final year we were doing stuff around queer theory. And that was like, pretty much 30 years ago and some of the stuff that I'm out there talking out there talking about and doing now obviously I've continued kind of learning and reading and thinking and all the rest of it but it grounded in all of that and I wouldn't have been able to tell you that at the time and when I did get my first proper job it wasn't part of any plan you know I didn't have a plan I always thought when I was a kid I either wanted to be a journalist or a hotel manager right okay I know I don't I think about the hotel manager quite a lot actually and I think it's something about loads of disparate parts and bringing them all together to like create something brilliant 
yeah. And when I re- I went to Vegas in the early 2000s and we stayed in the Bellagio and honestly it was remarkable what they deliver on a da- what they delivered on a daily basis and everyone that was part of delivering it and that made me think I can sort of see why I thought that at the time but I never quite understood it. Do you mean from like an operational perspective? Yeah. Yeah, from an operational perspective, it's incredible. So yeah, so having decided that I wanted to be um, maybe a journalist or a hotel manager, obviously I did this cultural studies degree and thought maybe I'll work in television. One of the first things we did in the cultural studies degree, by the way, spoiler alert, Mickey Mouse degree was watched um, an episode of Brookside in a big lecture theatre. It was something about what it meant about place, because, you know, obviously it was very much grounded in Liverpool, what it meant about sort of family and connection and then, like, you know, some kind of the sort of sociological and philosophical kind of stuff that you can pull into that. And it just made me think, ah, television's really interesting and I still watch television like this, you know, much to my partner's dismay when I stop and start talking about stuff. So I thought I'll work in TV. So when I finished my degree, um, I did loaf about for a bit you know, let's get it right, because I didn't take a year off or anything like that. And so I just thought I just need to rest for a moment. I actually applied to work for television companies, not knowing, of course, that people got to work in TV companies because they knew someone who worked in a TV company. Yes, I just thought I could write a letter and they might see how good I was. But that wasn't the case. Oh, okay. That didn't kind of materialise then? No, it didn't. And what happened was, was that I I stayed in Birmingham because my girlfriend was doing a my then girlfriend was doing a PhD, so we got a house and we stayed in Birmingham. And um, she said to me, my favourite lecturer needs a room to stay in one night a week. Can he come and stay with us? Because we had a big house with a spare room, weirdly. Mm. And I was like, uh, what are you talking about? This is weird. <laughs> what? <laughs> and then, Good. I thought you were going to say you said yes I'm pleased that, that you didn't yeah. well, I was like this is weird what are you talking about <laughs> yeah. um, and what I was what 22 maybe 21 so you know young but he was only he, he wasn't just 30 he was only just 30 if 30 so he was quite a young she was like look just meet him and see what you think so I met this guy and actually I really liked him really sound very interesting like the cleverest person you've ever met in the, you know, literally you've ever met. Um, And we got on really well. And basically he was living in London with his wife and packed all his teaching into three days. So he'd go up and down from Birmingham on a Friday, but his teaching would be Tuesday, Wednesday. So he needed someone to stay Tuesday night. So I was like, and he was going to give us a bit of money. And I was like, yeah, fine. Why not? This seems, seems like a nice guy. So anyway, he came and stayed with us one night a week. We got on really well. At the time, we were both suffering from a, from insomnia, so we'd often meet in the kitchen in the middle of the night right. and chatted and stuff. And then, you know, so I was literally loafing about. So that first, those first few months. So, you know, they'd come back from, you know, university on the Tuesday and I'd made dinner or whatever. And we just had a really nice time. And then come the Christmas of that year, his wife was editing a book about angels, like literally like winged angels. And they needed someone to do a bit of research. And they were like, do you want to do that? And I was like, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not doing anything else. I did this research on on these angels and they obviously thought it was good. And they were like, oh, she's quite good at this, whatever. So anyway, I didn't think anything of it. But then I thought I quite liked having a bit of money in my pocket. So then I was like, I better get a job. But I because I, I wasn't having any luck with the TV companies. So I went and worked in what was an early incarnation, because this is 1996 by this point, of a call centre. 
and it was basically a graduate graveyard. Everyone in there had just graduated, <laughs> didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. And we were all just answering the phone for different companies. So it was, um, I worked on West Bromwich Building Society because they put out like a new interest rate or something. And so we were the call centre for that because they were, had so much interest. Did some stuff for Canon on some things that they were doing. Um, I did outbound for a couple of weeks, but I didn't like it. We had to ring people up and try and sell them like windscreen insurance or whatever. Didn't like that. But incoming calls, no problem. So I did that for a bit and that was fine, but I wasn't that interested really, but I wanted to make some money. And at the time my parents were living in Australia. So I had the opportunity to go out there for like a month or something. So I wasn't going to let that go when at like age 22 or whatever and so I just jacked this job in I was like bye because I didn't want to I knew I didn't want to come back so I was like yeah thanks bye and the lecturer that was staying with us said to me oh I'm starting a business when you come back do you want to come and work for me and I was like well I quite liked him we did all right and this research project um, with him and his wife and his wife was going to be the other director with another woman who was a professor of so he's a he was a lecturer in hispanic studies at birmingham um his wife was a filmmaker so do you remember um i'm gonna slightly go off on a tangent here do you remember there was ever did you ever remember watching a film by eric Cantona called eric the king yes yeah yeah, yeah i did he made eric the king oh wow and morris who's this guy um had all these stories about eric because his friend that he went to school with they were doing sort of marketing stuff at Manchester United and um, Eric was deeply frustrated by every translator that he had because he fancied himself as an intellectual. And so James said to Morris, look, because Morris is a fluent French speaker, said to him, will you come and be Eric's translator? And he was like, no, I've got a job. Thank you. (laughs) But then of course was offered almost as much as he was earning all year round for being a lecturer, a junior lecturer to be Eric's translator. And so he was like, that's fine. And Eric loved him because, of course, he was, a you know, a professor. Mm. And they got on really well. And and actually, it was Morris's idea. And I don't know, I don't know if this, this is the apocryphal story, as I understand it, right. um, to come up with something, like, weird for him to say so they can put it on a T-shirt and, you know, and, like, start what was, like, a sort of a branding and marketing revolution in football, right? Yeah. So when the seagull follows the trawler, Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that it? Yeah. You know, and it was a comment on journalism, but it was also something that they that they had a hunch might end up being something iconic. Yeah. So anyway, so Morris and Sophie and Henrietta started this company called SHM, still going now, and um, I was the first employee. So I got back from Australia and we had a project and the name of that project was The Impact of Multimedia on Communities and Families. And that was sponsored by what was the Health Education Authority. There wasn't any seed funding or anything. It was just like, here's a piece of work. And they gave me a four-week non-renewable contract. I did find that the other day and do this piece of work and that was in August 1996 and I finally said goodbye to them in January 2016. 
Wow, that's amazing. So, so it's funny that you say I've had all these roles and all the rest of it because I actually spent nearly 20 years in one organisation. Now, yeah. of course, <laughs> I had a million different roles in that organisation and the organisation like grew and flexed. And when we let, when I left, we had offices obviously in London, but we also set up in New York and Mexico City. And we did have an office for a bit in Kosovo, but that didn't quite work out. And in 2008, we started a charitable foundation, which is still doing amazing work now. So SHM Foundation, if anyone's interested, doing really interesting things, particularly mental health globally. So yeah, and I'm really, really proud of that and still in touch with all the team over there at SHM because I hired most of them or at least those that are still there this many years on since I've left and Morris and I are still very good friends. That's amazing. I mean, it's amazing for many reasons. One, because it probably head on and as well as anyone ever has tackles that anxiety I mentioned earlier that people can have about there being a right way because serendipity isn't a word I really understood or use uh, frequently but we had a guest on recently who talked about serendipity a lot and how you know the idea that things just fall into place and there's an element of luck at play in everyone's career Mm. that often doesn't get recognized and people don't really discuss in in that kind of manner because it almost feels like you're not cheating, I can't find the, the right word to use yeah. it, but the fact that, that that evolved the way it did is absolutely fascinating and amazing. The Eric Canton, our Seagulls quote, is just one of those amazingly distinct, memorable things yeah. from my, my life as a football fan as well. So, so to think that there was actually uh, a plan for that to become such a sticky thing and such a you know amazing point of, of time, especially for someone like Eric Cantona, because it just it just perfectly fits him. Yeah, and I think that's exactly the point is that Morris knew Eric very well, and you know they didn't know if it was going to be sticky. To be fair, but they thought they'd give it a go. And also, there was something about you know constantly being you know, you know hounded for stuff and all the rest of it. But like then that just became the thing. I mean, I don't know how Eric feels about it now, but... Again, this is a bit crowbar, but with my marketing lens on, we talk a lot about meaningless distinction and just trying to be, you know, stand out and be different so that you do stick in people's minds. There's a wonderful rock festival poster where there's a a Scottish death metal band called Party Cannon. I'm Mm -hmm. not sure if you're familiar with it, but I'll share it with you. But basically the the poster probably houses about 30 or 40 different band logos and they all look exactly the same. It's that generic, illegible, one colour kind of scrawling of a logo. Whereas Party Cannon is effectively written in exactly the same font as Crayola Crayons, but with different multicolours. So like your brain remembers two logos. It remembers their logo and all of the others. And uh, there's something amazing about that, just planning things to just stick in people's heads that I I really, really admire. But what's interesting about that, though, the thing that strikes me as you're describing it is Crayola doesn't feel very metal. No, no, not at all. No, exactly that. So, but I guess that's why you you might remember it. Yeah. So, yeah, I wasn't expecting that at all because, yeah, as we said, you've worn, you know, you've certainly now you wear so many hats that I wasn't expecting to have that, you know, that one club mentality of just sticking with one gig. But I suppose maybe within that, you said you you worked in many different roles during that time. It was incredible because we built a business as well. I think that's the thing is that, I didn't know necessarily how to build a business, but I learned on the job. So, you know, the first thing I did, as I just said, was I was a researcher. And then as things developed, I was like, you know, a researcher, a project manager, a facilitator, a program manager, an account director, you know, etc. The thing that the where I really kind of cut my teeth was we did a piece of work. We were part of a kind of a consortium of organizations that were working for Thomas Cook mm. back in the late 90s. 
at the time we were working with Fitch, who were a design agency, and they just started like a little offshoot called the Fitch Digital Group. And we were part of the Fitch Digital Group. And the idea was, was that, you know, we had these designers, graphic designers, et cetera, who would look at like kind of, you know, it was the early incarnation of the internet, right? So like they were looking at UX, et cetera. And then we'd be thinking about how customers would interact with it. So from SHM's perspective, what we were was a, a you know, a, that's why I didn't hesitate on generalist rather than specialist, because we were an organization that was about putting people at the heart of everything a business does. And, you know, we, we talked in 96 about motivations, which everyone talks about now, but at the time it was a really big deal to be thinking about motivations rather than needs and wants. And so actually we were the people specialists in this. Mm. And so it was us, Fitch, one of the big consultancies, an organisation that was going to look after the database, some software engineers, etc. And basically what Thomas Cook wanted to do was put their brochures online. Because they were like, there's this internet thing. People mm. seem to be getting information from it. And obviously the work that we were doing with the consumers, we were like, you know what? People might not want to just have a brochure online. They might want to pick a flight from over here and a hotel from over there, which at the time, I know it sounds mad now, but at the time mm. it was like revolutionary. And yeah. the big consultancy basically provided the program management, but that program management was basically a big spreadsheet it frustrated everybody on the project that you had to sit around and just like talk about this spreadsheet. So they ended up firing the big consultancy and they asked me to do it because again, what you needed was somebody who would go and talk to all the parties and figure out what was going on and put it all together and say, right, we've got a problem over here because this isn't working and it has a dependency over there. So, but if we do this, we might be able to sort this out rather than it just being a spreadsheet. So it was, again, it was, a way of our philosophy from an SHM perspective of saying, actually, what you're doing is you're thinking about the people at the beginning of this, not the process. Mm. And so that, as I say, that really kind of cut my teeth in sort of understanding how to run a program and with some really senior people as well. When I wasn't, you know, I was still in my 20s, you know. And then from that did various things. And I then ended up basically running our business because it turns out I had a good knack for it. I had a good knack for... Um, making sure that we price things properly. I had a good knack for resourcing things in the right way. I had a good knack for figuring out um, how to deploy our talent, how to develop our talent, what good HR looked like, even though I didn't, you know, I wasn't an HR. I mean, I learned stuff, you know, I did stuff as I went along. I wasn't completely making it up. I, you know, the best course I ever did, for example, was I did one at the IOD, which was finance for non-finance professionals. It was probably two days. It was brilliant. You know, and I still think about some of the things that I learned on on that course. And so I ran our business. So I talked about New York and Mexico. You know, I set up the New York office. I set up the Mexico City office. I set up the Kosovo office. I set up the charity. So and that was the first charity I ever set up. And since then, I've been involved in the inception of three or four charities. And that all of that was really, really excellent sort of business grounding in really kind of knowing how business works. So some of the consultancy I still do, but my, I don't have that many clients is basically being, you know, a, a, alongside you as your sort of COO or your MD, if you like, because that's what I sort of, you know, did there. So just a quick segue into what I'm doing now is while I was in post at SHM, the Equality Act came into being. And that was like, I don't know, pulling together 160 or whatever it was, different bits of legislation into one act to ensure that people weren't discriminated against at work or in other parts of public life, you know, as 
number of there are nine protected characteristics and the first thing was I realized that everyone's gonna have to comply to that and so we had loads of clients it was like okay what does your compliance look like so that's what kind of grounded me in that but I've also always had a very keen sense of social justice so all of my friends from university when they realized I was like wasn't working in a charity or a not-for-profit and that was working in a business and like making money for other businesses they couldn't believe it because it didn't fit with who they knew yeah that sort of sense of social justice has always sort of been been in me and I suppose some of it came out in when I got back to London from Birmingham when I started doing this work I didn't really know any lesbians and I'd come out while I was in Birmingham so I joined a lesbian football team I guess some of my sort of social justice work if you like was sort of played out via that um but then in 20 in late 2014 my wife died unexpectedly and I think when something like that happens your obviously your whole world gets turned upside down obviously everyone at SHM was amazing because I you know they were all my people and we were you know all friends as well as working together and they you know was incredibly supportive I can't remember that first year particularly but then you know as that as it sort of the fog started to lift I wasn't sure whether I was doing the right thing anymore you know did I want to work from seven in the morning till seven at night it's Mm. like life literally felt too short Mm. and did I want to be spending my time helping big corporations make money I guess I was toying with all of that and around that time it's sort of you know in mid 2015 is when the Women's Equality Party came into being and at the end of 2015, they were going to hire a campaign director for the first London campaign, which was the London mayoral campaign, which was going to take place in May 2016. And I was like, oh, I mean, I've never run a political campaign before, but, you know, how hard can it be? Yeah. Just another project, right? <laughs> With people yeah. in it. Yeah. And so I said to Morris, I was like, because he was a member of the Women's Equality Party as well. And I was, I'd sort of got a little bit involved and, you know, I was running my local branch and then they, you know, I sort of started getting involved in the governance and stuff. And so um, I said to, I said to Morris, can I take sort of five months off unpaid, obviously, to go and run this campaign? I'm him looking at me and going, I think it might be time for you to leave. And, you know, he's my friend and I've known him for a long time and I've got nothing but the utmost respect for him. He really is quite a remarkable man. Morris Biriotti, if anyone's interested, B-I-R-I-O-T-T-I. He flies under the radar, but honestly, he's exceptional. I've never met anyone with a brain like his. I can't underestimate how much I, I learned from him. And he was right. It was time for me to leave. And so did he did he just see that you had like an appetite to be doing something yep. else more? I don't know, significant for want of a better yeah. word, and just knew that that was right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, and he could see that you know my life had changed forever in a way that I don't think any of us understood. I still probably don't quite understand it to be honest. And so it just wasn't the thing for me to be doing anymore. And so I went and ran this campaign, and then there I am in June 2016, going now what? Yeah. I decided to work for myself. One of the women was one of the candidates, was the interim chair of a sort of a startup charity. And she was like, they could probably do with some help. I went and met the founder who was sort of acting as the CEO at the time, you know, talked to her about what I thought they needed. 
And she was like, yes, please. And so, you know, I helped them get over the line with their charitable status and then just made sure that they were ready for their for their growth and, you know, did some work on their governance, did some work on their sort of chart of accounts, setting everything up that they needed in order to make sure that they had like a good functioning organisation and help them to recruit their chief executive, their senior team. And then I was like, oh, I can do this. And I think what I realised the most in all of that, which was really interesting for me, was actually, and this isn't, I don't want to sound arrogant in this, I'm going to say it anyway, is actually how good I was. Because I think if I I spent nearly 20 years in the same organisation, just doing what I did, and you don't really, you know, you're just doing it on a day-to-day basis, then you go somewhere else and you go, oh, this uh, this is much faster and of a higher quality. And then it made me feel a little bit for the people that I was kind of, you know, driving quite hard at SHM but actually they but it was always with great compassion and a lot of the people that I did you know like the people in my team from those days were always like you were the biggest pain in the ass but the best <laughs> but I wouldn't have learned as much as I learned and it was and they always you know and, and they it was a pain in the ass but it was always with compassion yeah and you know you don't do anyone any favors by not giving them feedback on their work yes how are you ever going to learn? We interrupt this podcast as we thought your ears had suffered enough of the monotone ramblings of the host. Now this is a voice. Most pods drop an ad into these interruptions, not gasp. We won't awkwardly nudge you to contact the pods host on 0189. 952-007 to talk strategy and research like other companies did only last week. Let's get you back to the pod. There aren't very many good things about getting older, but one of them is you care less about what people, you, you know, you, you realize that I don't give a shit what this person thinks. What, what do I care? Oops. Uh, well, there's only one Bob Hoffman. Episode 24 of Call to Action was a classic, but hold on. I'd intended there we are. to try and find where the bridge was between, and, and it's not as if there's any tension between it when you see it printed on paper and the research that we put together for the show, but the work that you do in terms of innovations and then looking into organisational culture and trying to improve and fix businesses of all, you know, all, all manners. I wondered if that, coupled with that sense of social justice that's always been part of, of who you are, yeah. was something that had materialised to where you are now because you had experienced so many flaws I suppose in organizations but it sounds like it was a little bit it was a little bit of a u-turn albeit in the process of that journey you obviously experienced so many different roles within a business you grew a business from the ground up you trained yourself on courses like the the IOD one that you mentioned so Mm -hmm. it wasn't just that you've just kind of learned and grown during that process you've actually sought training as well and experiences and then obviously a, you know a life tragedy causes you which I'm really sorry to hear about but causes you to kind of reset and, and rethink about where your energies are best served which which kind of took you in that different direction I'm not sure if there's a question there or not I'm just trying to kind of reverse understand this journey that I was, was really difficult to assume I knew the answer to <laughs> no I, th- I, th- I think that I think that's right but I think all of that has helped me to get to where I am now in terms of both having the experience and the legitimacy to do the work that I do. So like, you know, 
it's interesting you know I do a lot of work in sort of equity inclusion and belonging and as you say about an organizational culture but it's always grounded in business because regardless of any moral imperative that you might think is the right thing to do there's obviously something that like from a business perspective it's got to work for your business and you know what does asking the right questions you know there's no cookie cutter approach to this it's one of the reasons why at SHM, we often went up against the big consultancies. Sometimes we won and sometimes we didn't. Mm. Now, you know, like you've, there's that old adage, you're never going to get fired for hiring McKinsey, right? Yeah, but yeah. You're not necessarily going to get anything new because they've got a McKinsey way of doing things. Whereas, you know, what I learned at SHM, what they're still doing, what I do now is, it's like I take every, each time, and it's, you know, it might feel like it's labor intensive, but when you're a small organization, you can do that. Each thing each client each problem each question each everything is all on its own merit and asking that's why I also went to listening rather than talking that you know anyone listening to this now might think how on earth did she choose listening rather than talking because I appreciate I've spoken quite a lot um (laughs) it's because actually in those moments all you can do is listen all the experience I've got is not at all interesting. If you've got to, you tell me what it is that you, what the issue is, what the question is, what the things are that are troubling you. And all I can do is just listen and listen and listen and listen. And then think we can figure out together how we might approach solving it. And I saw that work time and time and again. And that's, that's all I can do now. And the interesting thing from the social justice perspective I'm talking about sort of, you know, the equity and inclusion work that, I, that I'll do, and some of that's in football now as well, mm. is that whether you're a football club or a business that kind of has lots of consumers, you have the reach and the ability to make change in their lives or to get them to think about things in a certain way. And football mm. can do that the best. So, you know... That's why I don't like, you know, you mentioned it at the beginning. That's why I'm not into the, you know, football's just a mirror of society. Yeah, you can say that, but then it just lets us all off the hook. Yeah, it's a bit cop out. Yeah, and when you've got an industry like that, that has so much reach and the ability to really talk to people in in a way that, you know, in the way that we all really understand there's a there's a massive opportunity there and that's why you know all all football clubs have got charitable foundations or club community organizations whatever you want to call them because they understand that it's you know by using football you engage kids with their education you know shout out to football beyond borders again look them up they do incredible work in education with you know with football as a hook you know whether it's around um you know your health outcomes you know it's not a surprise that during the pandemic it was not just because of space so because football stadia have space that football stadia had you know vaccination drives Mm. it's because actually there's something in that in in going to the football stadium Totally. The challenges and I suppose structure and dynamics of the world of football, the same as many businesses and organisations in terms of, you know, how you might solve problems, albeit it's just at a much, much bigger scale. I think the answer is yes and no. So I think the answer is yes, because a football club is just like any other business. But the answer is no, because the football side of the football is a weird little ecosystem, as you can imagine. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's funny that that mirror of society quote, which I which I really like. When you were talking about Brookside earlier, I wondered actually if there was a parallel there in terms of 
soap operas are also in many ways seen as a mirror but actually there's an opportunity with them to drive change and you mentioned the first lesbian kiss and 100% I still watch EastEnders I remember watching the very first episode and it's just like a bunch of old friends but also if you like I remember when Peggy Mitchell got breast cancer that breast screenings for women you know in their 40s and 50s went through the roof Mm. and that is exactly that yeah and and it is a mirror in the sense that women get breast cancer but it's also a driver for social and cultural change because you had somehow you had all those women going out and making sure that they got themselves checked out. And and I think film and television can really do that at its kind of best, mm. for sure. One thing that I want to get your thoughts on in terms of how football, I suppose, might differ to soap operas, although I think some expats <laughs> might disagree, but the actual global reach and appeal of, of football... The kind of social and cultural changes that you're trying to use football as a kind of medium to change, how tolerant do you have to be across kind of boundaries of geography and and religion and different cultures? Because it strikes me that, and I say this as a football fan first and foremost, that some of the issues you see even around something as as horrible as the issues that have been faced by Vinicius Junior at Real Madrid recently, if you were able just for a second to to step out and look at that problem through a Spanish cultural lens, you would probably interpret it quite differently to how you and I might do so, or I might do so from from an English lens. And I'm not saying for one second that's right. I'm just wondering where the line is. Where is there tolerance for different cultures and opinions? I think this is a good question. I think particularly for us as British people, we've got to make sure that we're not somehow... You know, this isn't just another way of kind of colonising the rest of the world, right? I totally get that. But I think at the heart of what you're just talking about is a man who's trying to do his job. Yeah. And whichever cultural context you put that in, you know, and I know you're not saying that the the racism is acceptable. Of course not. That racism is, is wholly unacceptable. And saying that this word kind of translates differently in Spanish, again, you don't want to let anyone off the hook. The fact is, is that you've got all those football fans doing that, which is abhorrent, of course. But then what happens when you have post-match, I don't know if you saw any of it, but, you know, they Carlo Ancelotti went into his press conference and they just asked him about the football. And he had to stop and say, what are you doing? I don't yeah. want to talk about the football. What about what's just happened to my player? And, you know, and then you've got sort of, you know, lots of platitudes around racism is unacceptable, but Vinicius Jr. hasn't come to the meetings that we had. So, you know, like putting something back onto him because, of course, you want to deflect from it. So, look, I think there are, you know, of course there are cultural contexts, but then there's also, you know, there are sets of, you know, what's right and wrong. And I come back to, you know, like whether you're setting up religion in opposition to LGBTQ plus rights, which often happens. All I'll ever do then is like, what what am I going to say to LGBTQ plus Christians or LGBTQ plus Muslims? It, you know, like where do they fit into all of this when we're saying that, you know, there's a some kind of, you know, cultural um, disconnect here. You know, there's a Ugandan LGBTQ rights campaigner called Frank Magisha, who I met many years ago now. When I met him, he was in the UK trying to build a campaign via the Premier League around LGBTQ plus rights. And he did that because he knew that he and his fellow Ugandans who are LGBTQ plus were in grave danger on a daily basis, but that English football particularly had such 
a reach and an impact on you know Ugandan cultural life it was like a massive kind of bringer together of people people love the Premier League so he knew that if he got the you know like even one Premier League player involved in saying it's okay to be LGBTQ plus that could literally be life-saving yeah and that's what I've come back to from that it's like yeah maybe in a cultural context overall there's some kind of a clash but then what am I going to say to Ugandan LGBTQ plus folk yeah 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 that's such a good point one thing that I wondered where there was was potential friction, I suppose, for want of a better word, is when you're dealing with football and especially football fans and the rivalry that can exist between football fans. I really enjoyed in an interview that you gave not so long ago where you actually called out to credit gay gooners on Twitter. Now, for anyone who's not familiar with football, they are, you know, Tottenham's arch rivals, the Arsenal. And it was interesting. And I wondered what the relationship was like between, say, gay gooners and proud lily whites, given that the context that you're all that you're trying to achieve, you know, powerful and significant change is also happening under the club banners and colours of two historically hostile entities. Or is it all one and one trying to do the same thing? That must be quite a tricky line to draw at times. Do you know what? It's not as hard as you might think, because I think from the perspective of trying to drive LGBTQ plus inclusion in football, we're definitely all on the same page. We all do it differently. There's some healthy rivalry and competition, of course. You know, like one of the funny things I always say is, you know, like when we first put our the Proud Lily White's flag up at White Hart Lane, you know, there was a massive like uproar and furore about it. You know, like, why do they get to put a flag up? What's so special about them? and all that kind of business. Now, we've got over all of that now. And, you know, like we're very much part of the furniture and the fabric of Spurs fandom, if you like. And the flip side of what's happened since then, because, you know, when we started, there were four LGBTQ plus fan groups. And now that they're more than 50, there's a little bit of like, our gays are better than yours amongst right. um the wider fan base, which right. is funny, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And not, and not completely bad. No, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, one of the things that we did with those first four groups, which was us, the Gay Gooners, Canal Street Blues, which is um, Manchester City, and Proud Canaries, which is Norwich, is we started an, a network of LGBTQ plus fan groups in the UK, which is called Pride in Football. And, you know, the thing that we decided under the Pride in Football umbrella is that we're stronger together. And that basically we all have the same goals and ambitions. We might decide that we want to do it in different ways. We're very much rivals on the pitch, but off the pitch, we'll help each other out as much as we can. One of the things that I'm most proud of is working with Chelsea Pride around a particular chant that's aimed at Chelsea that was, you know, really difficult because it's a homophobic chant and you ask anyone, um, you know, the majority, I won't say everybody, but the majority of the LGBTQ plus community, and it's like, look, that is a homophobic chant and it just serves to tell us that we don't belong here. But of course, it was hard for football clubs to do anything because it wasn't deemed homophobic by the CPS. So we realised, you know, do a little bit of analysis like you would in business, like really what's this problem? What do we need to do? That what we needed to do was to get the CPS to change its mind and then figure out, okay, so how do we do that? So Tracy Brown from Chelsea, Chelsea Pride and I, we gathered a number of impact statements from LGBTQ plus fans, which was basically like to say, this is what this feels like. This is what it does to me. And I'm super proud of Lee Johnson, who's my 
co-chair of the Proud Lily Whites, who actually really eloquently, and you can find it on the Proud Lily Whites website, which is a horrible website, by the way, if anyone wants to help us fix it, all (laughs) volunteers welcome, um, talks about his story about how he had to go away from football and his love for Spurs for nearly 10 years because of that chant. It was a slur that was thrown at him in the playground by the school bully. He was bullied by that slur. The school bully got suspended for it, yet there he was at football hearing it. And it affected his mental health at the time. And then hearing it at football, he couldn't, you know, he left, couldn't couldn't go to football for a number of years. He didn't get to say goodbye to White Hart Lane. Now, for anyone who's a football fan and understands what it means to be in those spaces, that was a big deal. But, you know, it was one of the stories that we gathered and we we aimed to get about 100 statements. You know, that was my target. We didn't get there, but we got to just over 70, which seemed like a good amount. And we built a dossier. We had a little bit of help from the FA as well. Shout out to them, to be fair. And the CPS reclassified it. And we've seen our first prosecutions. Now, look, I'm not looking to criminalise anybody, but actually that you know your actions have to have consequences and that was something that I we proudly did with Chelsea pride you know and there's no love lost between Spurs and Chelsea but it was we knew we you know doing that together was going to have a huge impact and we made change awesome that's fantastic I'm slightly mindful of time Chris so I'm going to hop to listener questions if, if I may so asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But as usual, we have two. Starting with Christine. Christine asks, what's your feeling towards designated days or weeks of action? Can they ever be negative to the cause? For example, if we want to one day eradicate discrimination, where do specific days dedicated to that cause fit in? Great question, Christine. Thank you. One of my mantras is rainbow laces is for life, not just for Christmas, uh, because it's just moved to the end of the year. And I think those weekends are really great because it means collective action and it means that you can properly have a kind of visible show of solidarity to the LGBTQ plus community via football. I appreciate it's just an example. But the important thing is, is that that then just becomes part of your year round work. So if you're just doing rainbow laces and then just putting everything in a little box and coming back to it next year, that's not helpful. But having a show of visibility and solidarity, you can't underestimate what that means for that community because you're not going to be able to sort of sing and dance all day. But actually having a massive, you know, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium lit up in a big rainbow, that means a lot to LGBTQ plus Spurs fans. Yeah. But what also means a lot to LGBTQ plus Spurs fans is that we are part of the conversation all year round, which is what the Proud Lily Whites does. So I think they work because they can highlight something in that moment, but also as a pathway into making sure that that work happens all year round. And look, I want to be in a place where we don't have to have this week and that week because we're doing the work all the time but until we are doing it all of this properly you need that to sort of you know highlight stuff and get initiatives going and then hopefully embed stuff throughout organizations yeah that's a really really good answer i interviewed once a chap called doug melville he had a fascinating career he was once britney spears's tour manager and then at the time of talking to him he was the first chief diversity and inclusion officer for tbwa global mm-hmm. and a point he made which actually really stopped and made me think was that one of the issues with there being departments within businesses who are 
created to tackle problems around diversity, equality and inclusion is that the rest of the business can all too easily see it as a problem that's their responsibility to fix that department specifically and not up to you know the entire organisation. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And that's one of the reasons why I spend a lot of time just sort of saying, look, yes, of course, I want to talk about equity, inclusion, diversity, belonging, whatever. But actually what we're talking about is your organisational culture and how we make sure that everyone in your business can thrive do their best work you know be brilliant in their jobs and make your business better yeah totally well funny enough that actually links quite well to our second listener question which comes from a really good friend of us both mr andrew spurrier doors aka asd asd asks from what do you see in influential businesses and bodies in sports and business what are the fundamental changes in culture and behaviors we need to see in order to be an inclusive and accepting workforce and why should we do them if the product is already working fine a little bit of provocation at the end there perhaps yeah i mean look Classic ASD, by the way. Yeah, classic. <laughs> Smart and provocative. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but there's no quick answer to that question, right? No. I think, you know, when you're talking about organisational cultures, the thing is, is that you, there is no one size fits all. So the business itself has to drive what its culture is. It's going to sound trite, but inclusion and belonging are so important. You know, look at Maslow's hierarchy. It ranks our need for belonging on par with our need for love. You know, to feel left out is a deeply human problem, which is why its consequences carry such heft and why its causes are so hard to root out, even of the healthiest workplaces. So, you know, being connected, respected and having that all important sense of belonging unites team members around their purpose. We're all sort of striving to deliver our work. Right. And that sense of belonging can do that. So, you know, and then in turn, purposeful and meaningful work breeds ownership engagement accountability and commitment to the team and the organization so the role of belonging at work is crucial and again it's as i say it sounds trite because like what does that belonging actually mean well you have to do proper work on your culture and proper work on inclusion and diversity isn't good enough right To start this, you need to accept that we live in patriarchy and white supremacy and heteronormativity. And it might not be deliberate, but issues will happen around all of those things. And we can either ignore them because we don't want to be that organisation or you recognise that the stuff happens and that you're going to be the organisation that does something. So create an outcome metric, for example, of resolving employee issues rather than worrying about how many there are. And culture is the key. Can your organisation support any kind of EDI strategy that you put in place culturally? There's no point in having targets for more black women or more women leaders if they're not going to be able to thrive because you've got a boys only culture. Yeah, great answer, Chris. Well said. So the final part of the interview is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. So number one is what advice would you give to your younger self? It's going to sound like a cliche, Giles, but it gets better. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. I'd tell myself that too. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Number two, if you could banish one thing from your industry, what would it be and why? It's hard to say what my industry is because obviously I've got clients across industries. But I think if we're talking about football, I think I ban the phrase, well, that's football or that's anything, frankly, you know, like, or that's the way we've always done it. 
I think is I suppose what I'm getting at. And that's because that for me is always a red flag. It's like, well, okay, if that's the way you've always done it, I'm not saying we should always reinvent the wheel, but what's that hiding? You know, what's that letting us get away with that could be better? Yeah, especially if there's an injustice at the heart of that thing, because yeah. all, it, all it really says is is it's an even bigger problem than than you might think it is if it's been acceptable for so long. Exactly. Are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners? I don't know if you're a, an avid reader or not. And this can be this can be work or play. I am indeed. Well, I would always say to anybody, go and read Bell Hooks. I first read read Bell Hooks as a student. And it stayed in my mind. I think she first wrote a book at 19. So she only died a couple of years ago. And I was like, wow. And she was only in her 60s. So it made me realise actually how prolific she was from a very young age. And she writes some really good stuff about love and love being a radical act and all of those things that you've heard sort of paraphrasing of. That's from her. But the one that really sticks in my mind is called From the Margins to the Centre. And basically what she talks about is if we design our world for those on the margins of it, then we could actually make it brilliant for everybody. So shout out to Bell Hook. Nice. There's a Turkish writer called Ece Tamulkaran, sorry if I've butchered her name, who wrote a book called How to Lose the Country, The Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship. She wrote it a couple of years ago and watching what's just been happening in the Turkish elections is worth reading and I realized you know as a Greek Cypriot that I've picked out two Turkish writers here but what am I going to what can I do um (laughs) don't tell my dad Elif Shafak how to stay sane in an age of division which is all about the polarization of the world and like you know if you care about stuff how to stay sane in it which is brilliant and she also writes fiction and this final book it's really really sort of moved me when I read it I think at the back end of last year it's called The Island of Missing Trees and it's about Cyprus and I haven't really read very much about Cyprus and obviously Cyprus has the last divided capital in Europe it's still a UN buffer zone and there's a UN peacekeeping force across Nicosia and it splits between Cyprus and around the time of the invasion and North London in 2016 and so you know I was born in this country, but my family is from Cyprus and are refugees from that area. So, Well, this episode will include listings to uh, The Island of Missing Trees by Elib Shavlakt and Eche Tamalkarin. I mean, if you hadn't butchered her name, I just did. And Bell Hooks, who hasn't actually come up at all before. So really? That's, uh, they're all very new. So that's good and rare. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I'm going to to look that up. And then finally, we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode? I'm going to dedicate this episode to my partner, Tabitha Morton. We met seven years ago via the Women's Equality Party and both our lives have changed in a way that neither of us expected because of it in a really good way as well as obviously, you know, being very much in love and living together and and finding our way in the world together. We've both got like a quest for social justice, women's equality and ending violence against women and girls. So she's definitely the most interesting person you've never heard of. Uh, She grew up as a Jehovah's Witness. Her parents took her out of school when she was 10, but she was then the first woman on the UK board of the company that she used to work for. She's remarkable. And so, yeah, I dedicate this to her. Amazing. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful dedication. This episode is very proudly dedicated to Tabitha. Fantastic. Chris, listen, thank you so much for joining us. It's been, it's, I've enjoyed it even more than I knew I would. And it's been a real pleasure. 
Thank you so much for having me, Giles. I mean, you know, it's not very often that you get to talk about yourself quite so much. I might feel embarrassed by the end of it because I have done quite so much, but I really enjoyed it too. So thank you for the opportunity. Oh, not at all. So as a final call to action, everyone listening can pick up all of those links to the books that Chris recommends. But how else can our listeners get more Chris Powers? So I'm the only person in the world with my name. So if you get my vowels in order, which is A-O-U in the order they come, so P-A-O-U-R-O-S. So you can find me on most social media platforms and I have a website, which is chrispowros.com. And actually, I recorded Guardian Women's Football Weekly yesterday morning. So uh, if you're interested in women's football, you can hear me on that. And I actually also sing a little song in the middle of it, which I can't quite believe, but I did. <laughs> that will also be linked on this episode so if you're listening to this now you can scroll down on whatever device you're on and find that link and enjoy chris's vocals (laughs) okay well thanks again chris and finally thank you to everyone listening if you've enjoyed the episode please do share and review the podcast keep your questions and guest requests coming in to get in touch it's easy to find gasp online or email call to action at gasp.agency Try and I try and I try.